0: Difficulties of their own uh, might lie on the pillow at night and sing these songs, maybe even as a family. Now let me give you the historical background of this. <clears throat> God's people uh, have formed a nation. God has formed a nation from the Hebrew people. And uh, for years they've lived under what was known as a United Monarchy. In other words, they were ruled by a king. There was King Saul, there was King David, there was King Solomon. That was, they were under a single leadership. But, after the death of Solomon, the nation was split in two. Between a northern kingdom, which took the name Israel, and the southern kingdom, which took the name Judah. The northern kingdom uh, consisted of ten of the tribes, and the southern kingdom, Kingdom consisted of two of the tribes. This psalm focuses on the southern kingdom, Judah. The king of the south is Hezekiah. You've heard that name before. And uh, he and the southern kingdom are facing an enemy, the mighty empire of Assyria. Now the only way you can describe Assyria is it was an evil empire. Did you ever hear anybody say that something was an evil empire? Remember when President Reagan called the Soviet Union an evil empire? They were evil because they expanded their territory and their holdings by conquering other nations and subjecting those nations to Communism and this is what Assyria did. Uh, It conquered one nation after another and that's how it grew and it was the most powerful empire in the world, much more powerful than little Judah in the southern portion of what today we call Palestine. The king of Assyria was Sennacherib. Did you ever hear that name, Sennacherib? He was the king. He was a very evil king. And he was uh, uh, just conquering one land after another. And in 701 B.C., he had conquered the northern kingdom. He just devastated the northern kingdom. So much so that some people said that the ten tribes were totally lost because the people were scattered. They never were, but that's the way they described them. And now, 701 B.C., and Assyria again is on the march. And Sennacherib and the Assyrians are heading southward toward Judah to destroy King Hezekiah and that kingdom. So that's the situation. Now there are three passages of Scripture that serve as background for this psalm. We're going to look at one of them now, and then we're going to look at the other two a little bit later. Okay? So I want you to hold your spot right here in Psalm 76, and I want you to turn to the left in your Bible to 2 Kings. And you go about 100 pages and you'll find 2 Kings. And when you get there, turn to 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings Chapter 18, and we're going to start in the middle of the chapter, Second Kings 18, beginning at verse 17. It sounds like a modern scenario when you read it. Second Kings 18:17. Then the king of Assyria, that's Sennacherib. And by the way. Its capital city was Nineveh. you all remember Nineveh? When Jonah went and preached to Nineveh and they repented? Well, they're in, no longer in a state of repentance. Generations have passed and now more evil people have ro- risen up and taken over. And one of them is the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. He sent the Tartan, Sapseris, and the Rabshakeh, from with a great army against Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, to King Hezekiah. And they went up and they came to Jerusalem. And when they had come up, they went and they stood by the aqueduct at the upper pool, which was on the highway to the fuller's field. And when they had called to the king, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household of, of Shemnah, the scribe, and Joah, the son of what? Asaph. So now Asaph's son is involved in this summit conference between these generals from Assyria and they are representing the southern kingdom of Judah. Asaph the recorder came out to them. Then Rab- Rabshaka said to them, now say to Hezekiah, thus says, the great king, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, what confidence is this in which you trust? In other words, do you think you can beat us? What are you putting your confidence in? You speak of having plans and power of war, but they're mere words. And in whom do you trust? That you would rebel against me. That's the words of the king. Now look, you're trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt. You think that Egypt will be your ally, and they'll come to your aid, and you'll be able to defeat me, This broken reed, Egypt, on which, if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. This guy couldn't... Couldn't beat his way out of a fight. His way out of a wet paper bag. Why would you trust in him? Is that who you're trusting in? You know. But if you say to me, "Well, we trust in the Lord our God. We trust in heavenly resources." Is not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away, and said to Judah and Jerusalem, "You shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem"? Now, therefore, I urge you. In other words, you're wasting your time trusting in God. Therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master. In other words, make a tribute, financial tribute, to my master, the king of Assyria. And I will give you 2,000 horses, if you're able, on your part, to put riders on them. You probably don't even have an army of 2,000 men that could, could even ride the horses. But, you know, we'll give you some horses but you need to pledge your allegiance to my king. Now look at verse 36. There's more there, but we'll just skip and do the relevant verses for this study. But the people held their peace. And they answered him, not a word. For the king's commandment, that's Hezekiah's commandment, was, do not answer him. Don't even negotiate. Don't give an answer. Then, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household of Shevner, the, pri- uh, the ch- uh, scribe, and Jonah, Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, and told him the words of Rabshakeh. So they said, "Well, he, they blasphemed our God and said He can't help. You know, our trust in Him is useless, and so forth." Look at verse one of chapter nineteen. So it was when Hezekiah heard it that he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and he went into the house of the Lord that would be the temple then he sent Eliakim who was over the household of Shebna the scribe and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet the son of Amos. Our second passage that we're we'll going to look at later is going to be in, out of Isaiah because Isaiah comments on these events. Okay, Now look down in verse 6. And Isaiah, the prophet, said to them, Thus shall you say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, and he shall return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Don't worry about anything. I'm going to scare this guy out of his socks, and he's going to run and retreat to his own country. Now look down at verse 36, verse 35. And it came to pass that a certain, on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses, the entire army, all dead. So Sennacherib, who by this time had gone to a fight another battle in another area, he hears the rumor of what happened. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. The next verse, by the way, tells us how he died in Nineveh through a coup. So there is the background for this psalm. Psalm 76 is based on this event. Okay, so you're with me? The other two passages we'll look at in a few minutes. So let's go back to Psalm 76. And we're going to divide this psalm into three parts. First part will be verses 1 through 3, where Asaph, the songwriter, speaks of God's greatness. Verses 4 through 9, he speaks of God's glory. And then verses 10 through 12, how we should respond to God's greatness and God's glory. Okay, so let's look at that first section and we'll begin in verse 1. In Judah, now which kingdom is that, northern or southern? southern? In the southern kingdom, God is known. That means God is acknowledged. They acknowledge God as their God. He is known. A lot of, uh, we talked about the God who is known last week. Remember we talked about how uh, Paul went and preached on Mars Hill about the unknown God. Remember that? Because they believed that there may be some God that they didn't know. And he said, well, I'm going to tell you about him. I'm going to tell you about his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus, when he met the woman at the well, remember? She said, well, which mountain? I have a question. You must be a prophet. Can I ask you a question since I got you around here, since you're a pastor of a church, you know? That's what people always do. You know, they'll grab you if you know a little bit about the Bible. And I have people always say, can I ask you a question? So, you know, so you're always working, you know. And so she sees Jesus and says, can I ask you a question? Should our fathers worship on that mountain or that mountain? Remember that? he said, well, there's going to come a time when you're going to worship God in spirit and in truth. Remember when he says that? Uh, And he also says this. He says, you people worship a God you do not know. We worship, meaning the Jews, worship a God we do know. So here's what it says in verse 1. In Judah, God is what? He is known. He is acknowledged. Okay. And then it says, and his name is great in Israel. All the way up to the northern kingdom, his name is heralded because they, uh, they know about God, even though they've been very disobedient. They know God is great. God would have rescued the northern kingdom had they followed him. But they chose not to. And they end up being destroyed. Now a couple of things I want you to notice in verse 1. First of all, notice that God is spoken of in the third person. It doesn't say you're great. It says God, like i talking about a third person. God is great. So that's number one. Notice that knowledge of God is limited. It's limited to God's people. You see that? In Judah and Israel. So the other nations do not acknowledge God. Okay. God is known and God is great in Judah and Israel because God has acted on their behalf and delivered them miraculously, and that's how they know he lives alive. That's how they know he's great, because he has revealed himself to them through these acts of deliverance. So it's important that you understand why they would say God is great and why they would say God is alive. There's many Christians who might say God's great and God's alive, but they don't know it. Because he's never done anything in their life. They're just operating on theory. So well, I believe it's really important that we spend the amount of time that we do on like Sunday praying for sick people. So when there's a miraculous healing, you say what? God is great. But he reveals himself through those actions. It's really important. Look at verse 2. In Salem. Now, this is not Salem, Massachusetts. This is Jerusalem. Okay, it's an abbreviation for Jerusalem. Remember Melchizedek back in Genesis 14 or so? He was the king of Salem, the king of Jerusalem. In Jerusalem also is his, he's speaking in the third person, God's tabernacle, God's tent, God's house. And his dwelling place in Zion. That's Mount Zion the what we call today the Temple Mount, where the temple was. God lived among the people right there in that land. There, in that land, when the Assyrian army came against God's people, there, he broke the arrows of the bow. They had these bow and arrows, and they were going to attack. God breaks the arrows of the bow. He broke the shield, a defensive weapon, and the sword, an offensive weapon of battle. And that refers to what we just read about. That's why they say God's great. That's why they say God is good. Now, Isaiah the prophet speaks about God breaking the arrows of the. Assyrian army. And so keep your finger here, and this time I want you to move to your right. About 75 pages Isaiah 37. This whole chapter is about Sennacherib and Assyria and coming against God's people. We're going to look to only three or four verses. Isaiah chapter 37. And look at verse 33. Isaiah 37 and verse 33. Remember they came to the prophet Isaiah. Remember that? In the original story? Now Isaiah is speaking. He's telling about it. He says, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. This is Isaiah 37, 33, He, the king of Assyria, shall not come into the city, nor, what? Shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with, with a shield nor build a siege mound against it. They won't be able to build up some mount against the wall and climb over the mountain, over the the wall. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return. He's going to retreat. He shall not come into the city, says the Lord. I will defend the city and save it. For my sake and for my servant David's sake. Because I made a covenant with David. I am going to save the city. So here we see the, con- the, the concepts of arrows and shields, which God breaks. Now, did he literally just go around and break everybody's arrows? No, this is you know, figurative language. But it means he defeats them and destroys their weapons. So that makes sense. So that's the Isaiah passage. Okay. So now, when we go back to Psalm 76, we come to the second section about God's glory. And you're going to see something that's very interesting. Look at verse 4. He addresses God. You're more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. Now, the first thing, you'll notice that this section, the pronoun changes. From him to you. It goes from third person to second person. The person who speaks is the first person. If I speak to Charlotte, I'm the first person I'm speaking. I'm speaking to her. She's the second person. So, here he's speaking to God. That's the difference between third person and second person. Second person, you're speaking to the person. In third person, you're speaking what? About the person. So, this begins the second section. This is how you read the Psalms. You're always looking for the pronouns. It's very important. Now, look how he describes God's nature in verse 4. More glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. In other words the word there, glorious and excellent, uh, speak of God being an luminous being. Luminous being. Uh, God is like uh, the sun that's hiding behind the clouds. And everything looks dark and gloomy on the earth. And suddenly the clouds break in. The sun bursts out. And you go, (gasps) here comes the sun. And that's what God's like. It looks like he's Nowhere to be seen, and suddenly he just bursts onto the scene. And what he does, it's glorious. Notice there's a comparison there. Notice the words more and than. you see that? God is more excellent and glorious
1: than
0: the mountains of prey. Now, the translation that Peggy read said he's more glorious than the mountains. Uh, this is a more literal, and it says, more glorious than the mountains of prey. Uh, prey is the spoils of battle. Everywhere that Sennacherib attacked, he wiped out the people and took the spoils, the prey of battle. And there were heaps of gold and silver and jewels that would just, you go in and you go, ooh, look oh. Well, God's more glorious than even that. He's more glorious, more excellent than Sennacherib, and everything this man owned in the one battle. So that's important that you see there's a comparison there between the two kings, in a sense. God is king, and Sennacherib, and everything that he owns. Now, the reason that Asaph says this is found in verse 5. The stout hearted were plundered. How do you know God's more excellent than everything that Sennacherib owns? The stout hearted were plundered. Now, stout hearted there means the brave. The brave soldiers of Assyria, Uh, the the courageous, uh, self-confident soldiers who thought that no one could ever bring down Assyria or defeat Syria. Remember when the Soviet Union went to Afghanistan the first time? You know what happens when a a nation is proud and thinks it's going to, hey, World War II is going to be over by Christmas. Remember when they said something like that? This whole thing will be over by Christmas. Boy. It doesn't last until Christmas. These things will last. And this is what happens. Prideful nations oftentimes think, hey, this is going to be a piece of cake. And guess what? They're stout-hearted. They're ready to fight. You know, They've been trained. They have the best equipment. And uh, with God, he just <coughs> plunders them. And they have sunk, verse 5 says, they have sunk into their sleep, which... Means they have died. They have died. They were incapable of firing. Uh, The stout hearted were plundered. They plunged into their sleep. Look at this. None of the mighty men have found the use of their hands. Now, this could mean one of two things. Of those who didn't die, maybe there were more than 185 or 65,000 who died, we don't know. Maybe the, the devastation was so great and there was a remnant of soldiers left over and they couldn't find the use of their hands in verse 5. The mighty men have not found the use of their hands. It could be that they were so shocked, shock and all, that they couldn't even lift their... They were, they were scared out of their boots. They couldn't even lift their rifles when God moved in. Like Barney Fife, you know, trying to corner of, you know, crook. You know. <laughs> uh, or it could mean, well, when you're dead, guess what? You have no use of your hands anymore. <laughs> you can't lift a rifle. And uh, one of those two explanations is what this verse means. And either way, guess what? They've lost. Now look at verse 6. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, means the God, God, the God of uh, Israel, both the chariot and the horse were cast into a deep sleep. Uh, notice it says this at your review. Just a word. It's all it took was one word, and everything. Their weapons, their you know, their the horses, their chariots. Uh, their, we'd say today their tanks, their missiles. Everything. All God had to do was one word, and here came all these angels, and one hundred and sixty-five thousand were slain just on the word. Just look. Like that. That's all it took. Now, what does, what does Sennacherib have to do to win a battle? He has to have all these thousands of troops, all these weapons. God just says a word just like. That's all it takes. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane They came to, to arrest him? And, he, and they said, uh, you know, are, are you Jesus? And he said, you know, it is I. And remember, they all fell backwards. And he got up and said, you really couldn't arrest me if I didn't want you to. He said, I could call on my father and he'd send six legions of angels down just like that with a word. And you know what those angels would have done to the soldiers from the the guards of Gethsemane? Same thing that happened here. Just with a word. So you see what God can do with just a word. He can speak everything into existence with a word. Look what he can do to his creation if he gets angry toward it. Now the result is verse 7. You yourself are to be feared. Notice the emphasis, the repeat there. You yourself. That means you are the one who's to be feared, not King Sennacherib. See, all the threats were, you know, if you think you can trust the king of Egypt, if you think you can trust God, you don't know who you're up against. You're up against the king of Assyria. And uh, this is Asaph saying, well, Lord, we know that you, you alone, in a sense, are to be feared. And he asked a question. Who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? And what's the answer? No one can stand in God's presence if he gets angry. You never want God to be angry with you. So just imagine for a moment what judgment's going to be like on the last day. When God is angry and his wrath falls on people, no one will be able to stand. That's what the book of Revelation says. Who can stand? And the answer is no one can stand when God gets angry. Look at verse 8. You cause judgment to be heard from heaven. Uh, that could refer to those angels who are coming down to fight that battle. Verse 8 says, The earth feared and was still. Uh, there was no rallying of troops. No saying, let's go back and fight a second time against this God. no. The earth was absolutely stilled. Now, some Bible teachers, or Bible commentaries, rather, say that this verse, verse 8, You caused judgment to be heard from heaven, and the earth feared and was stilled. Uh, they say that refers to the last judgment. It points to the last judgment, even though it's written in the past tense. You notice the tenses there? You caused, that's past tense, see that?